Hello. I'm glad to be back. I got to be gone last week, and maybe some of you were for Labor Day too, but Michael taught for me, so it was great to get away and get refreshed, and that was wonderful. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Um, would you open in your Bibles to Romans? I know you saw that coming, right? Okay, Romans. And um, at the same time, I'm going to ask you to grab something out that you were given when you came in this morning. And it's a big nine zero on the front. It says 90, pray 90. Either per person you got one or per family, perhaps you got one when you came in, maybe with your bulletin. If you didn't get one, we have more of them. I really want you to get a hold of it. I'm going to ask you to think back for a minute, 12 weeks when we started the book of Romans. If you weren't here, we started studying the book of Romans in, uh, in June. And I, I committed you to a very, very long study whether you agreed to it or not. Um, and we've made it to chapter 2 in 12 weeks. We're uh, finding ourselves at verse 5 this morning, or verse 6. And you might remember when we started the book of Romans that I asked you to do something. Um, first, we talked about individuals going all the way back to Greek philosophers whose lives had been radically transformed because of reading Romans. And in that moment, I asked you to stop and pray that God would save people through our study of the book of Romans. Do you remember that? That God would use it to speak into individuals' lives. I'm here to tell you that since we started the study of the book of Romans in June, I have met individual after individual after individual who have become Christ followers here at New Hope. It's a good thing, right? Okay. And that's, that's worth celebrating. And then individually, if you're already a believer in Christ, you may have found yourself already growing in your walk in Christ. Maybe you would say, I'm further along today than I was in the month of June. I have a better understanding of who I am as a Christ follower. The reason we stopped to pray at that period of time when we started this study is that we recognize that any time we take on a God-sized task, like studying the book of Romans... It requires God to lead us, right? We need God to lead us every time we take on a God-sized task. That's the reason you hold this little booklet in your hands right now. It says Pray 90 on it. Because what I'm asking the church to do, and maybe you received the email from me a couple days ago explaining this, is we obviously as a church are getting ready to build a building. We bought a piece of property affirming that we intend to do that. The membership of the church voted 100% to agree to purchase the property for that reason. And 93-some and percent of those who are regular attenders said, absolutely, I'm totally in with this. So we put together this little booklet that says Pray 90 because I'm asking you to do this for 90 days, to stop at 9 o'clock at night and pray for 90 seconds. The whole church, everybody in the church, just whatever you're doing. Maybe you need to pull out your cell phone right now and just put your alarm on and give yourself a reminder. I actually did that last night before I went to sleep. I pulled my phone out, put it at 9 o'clock for the next 90 days to remind myself to stop and pray so that the whole church does this collectively. Now you may be thinking, man Mark, 90 seconds doesn't sound very long. Listen, I'd be totally good if you hit 90 seconds and stop there. And if you want to go longer, God would be great with that too, right? That would be wonderful. But collectively, for the entire body of Christ to be able to come around one common objective for 90 days to pray about what is God up to, how does he want me personally to respond, that's the purpose of this little booklet. 
So you're gonna find some of the things that are in there I wrote, some of the things were written by Rick Bruce, he's one of the missionaries that we support. Collectively, this entire staff worked on this together so that we could put it in your hands today because starting tonight at nine o'clock, we're asking you to begin doing that. God, how do you want me to respond? This specifically plays into where we're going with the book of Romans this morning and in this passage that we're looking at. I am personally convinced that God intends to use New Hope Church to bring new hope to people in the Metro Lansing area who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I am convinced he intends to continue to do that. He's already doing that. Why would he not continue to do that? So we believe that he intends to use us in that way. We're simply trying to be prepared for what he's doing. And so we're going to look at Romans in that light this morning in the way that we're approaching this passage because you and I, when we come before the Father in prayer, what we're trying to do is not shape God to our will. We're rather trying to put ourselves in this place where we would be participants in accomplishing His will because His will is always done in heaven, right? Think of the Lord's Prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, would you teach us how to pray? Jesus' response is, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. Is God's will always done on earth? Well, when his people submit to him, it is. So Jesus was saying, this is the way you should start praying. Pray that God's will would be done on earth just as it always is in heaven. So we conform our ways to him, not asking him to conform to us. That's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. So before we start it, I'm going to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we submit and we come before you in humbleness. We recognize you have much to say to us. And you've recorded those things in your word. We ask right now that your Holy Spirit would give us insight. We don't approach this lightly or casually, but rather, Father, recognizing that eternity hangs in the balance. You have used moments like this to bring people into the kingdom to show them what it means to have forgiveness of sin. I pray that you would accomplish that again today and that you would also shape our lives according to your will. We pray for this now in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who inhabits this auditorium, who will teach us and guide us. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. Okay. We understand um, human nature because we function among society, we understand human nature really likes rewards. There, there's a reason that the credit card industry bases their sales of credit cards or pushing their product on a reward system. So, for instance, like a Capital One card, they constantly push rewards, 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 because 
Humans respond to that. We like rewards. My brothers and I, when we were teenagers, we would ride our bikes because we grew up in western Michigan to the local blueberry farm where we could pick blueberries and earn extra spending money during the course of the summer. But one of the rewards that we got as a result of not just piling up our buckets full of blueberries was that we got to eat the blueberries while we were sitting at the bushes, right? So you put one in the can and you put one in your mouth. That was kind of my reward system. We respond to that. My mom would send us out to those blueberry farms to pick. Well, I, I had no reason to not want to go simply because I knew what was waiting for me on those blueberry bushes. Couldn't wait to get there. We understand rewards. We respond to rewards. The Bible says a lot about rewards. I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 20. And I want you to look at rewards in a different light this morning. Go with me up on the screen to Revelation 20, verse 11. You don't have to turn there necessarily. You'll see this verse on the screen. John's writing about the day of judgment, and he says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Sounds like a scary moment, doesn't it? And it says, they were judged from the books, the things that were written in them, according to their deeds. So there's a reward system. There's a compensation system. According to what people did do or didn't do, remember that phrase, according to their deeds, because it's going to come out in Romans a lot. This is consistent with what Jesus said. Look with me again on the screen at Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Now that naturally takes us right into Romans 2, verse 6. If your Bible's already open there, you'll see it right along with me. God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, Paul writes. There's a basic principle of the final judgment that we need to understand. We've been spending a few weeks talking about God's judgment. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 62, but he's also quoting Jeremiah. Let me show you the Jeremiah passage. You see this Jeremiah 17.10 passage? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. In verse 6, when it says to each person, it makes it extremely personal, doesn't it? He's making it right to you, to me. He's making it to every single person. This payment program is an individual matter. And this is a constant throughout the entire Bible. The works that I do, my deeds, the works that I do, are an outward expression of what I am deep down inside. The things that Mark Kring does, they just reveal my interior motives, who I am. Now, right now, if you're familiar with Romans, you might be thinking, wait, Mark, I, I thought you have been showing us that a person is saved by faith. That's what Romans shows us. Absolutely true. But works play into this in a fashion. I want you to understand this, and, and I don't want to freak anybody out over that. I'm going to be very, very careful about how we step through this this morning. Later, you're going to see Paul remind us in chapter 3, and he affirms, we are justified by faith. Though your salvation is all grace, and it is, right? We agree with that. Salvation is by grace. Your judgments 
will be on the basis of your deeds. We really need to understand that, on the basis of your works. In the context of what Paul's writing here in chapter 2, he's not talking about how to be right with God. What he's talking about is how God judges the authenticity of our faith. So he says, according to their deeds, the word according is the word kata in the Greek language, and it means against. In other words, there's a stack, God keeps a record, like the books we just learned about in Revelation chapter 20. There's a record of the things that we have done or not done, and God keeps a record of those things, and he's talking about the consistent actions of a person's life, the total impact of their lifelong conduct, how we respond to what we know God is asking us to do. There's a quote that comes from a, a theologian who's passed away, lived in the 1900s. I wanted you to see it. A.M. Hunter kind of nailed it. He said this, A man's destiny on judgment day will not depend on whether he has known God's will, but on whether he has done it. That's a pretty good one. We put it in your notes this morning in case you haven't pulled those out of your bulletin yet. That's a, that's a good one to remember. See, this is why, church, you find Jesus teaching about meeting the needs of people who are needy. So he talks in Matthew about this passage where he says this, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was in prison and you didn't come and visit me. I was in the hospital. You didn't bring me any comfort. So those people who would say back to him, but Lord, Lord, we did such things. He would say, now depart from me. I never knew you because you actually had no real relationship with me. And he goes on to explain in Matthew 25, those people were going to depart away to eternal punishment. What does he base that on? How they responded to what they knew that he called them to do. Now, lest I'm confusing you, and I told you I want to step through this very, very carefully, let's understand judgment by deeds first before we go any further. Let me give you an Old Testament example of it. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 3.10. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. It's a good thought, right? We get righteous people get rewarded for the fruit of what they've done. But look at the second part. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. That's Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament, John 5:28. This is Jesus speaking. All who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's fairly broad and very general. When you get to Corinthians, you find Paul actually writing to the church. He's writing to like New Hope on Sunday morning at 9.15 and says this very specifically, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, the Bible consistently teaches there's a judgment on the basis of the products of a person's life. So on the day of judgment, it won't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile, if you attended church your whole life or you didn't. The issue will be this, whether or not your life has demonstrated obedience to God. And first and foremost, the highest criteria of obedience to God is did you make Jesus Christ Lord of your life? That's the very first position. That's the one we need to understand. Did I follow Jesus? I just want to be real clear on this. 
Your personal condition for eternal salvation is faith and faith alone, right? Nothing added to it. So I'm not trying to add something to your faith. I will defend that position to the day I draw my last breath. But the reality of your salvation is revealed in the works that the Holy Spirit leads you to achieve. See, for that reason, good deeds become a really solid basis for God's judgment. Because of this, my actions are a flawless indicator of my character. It's true of you. Your actions are a flawless indicator of your character. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruits. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about us, right? He's talking about the believers. He's talking about the church. You will know them by their fruits. So the works of my life is this fixed base from which God will judge. And Romans reminds us in chapter 14, verse 12, on that day, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So every one of us will face God and he has a complete record of all our actions. Starts to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Okay, there's good news coming. There's good news. But it, it does make you feel a little bit uncomfortable when you read things like that, when you hear that. It's very, very clear that although Scripture teaches judgment is by works, it nowhere teaches salvation is by works. Now, this confused some people last night, Saturday night, after the service, as you can imagine. We had like 20 minutes of questions afterwards, Q&A. If you're not familiar with Saturday night, we do a normal service like we do here, but afterwards we allow Q&A time. And there was a lot of pushback and feedback and people trying to uh, make sure we understand this. So I want to make sure you're really clear on what we're talking about. Although Scripture teaches judgment is by works, it nowhere teaches salvation is by works. And so as people of grace, we very quickly lean into Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Well, let me put it on the screen for you, in case you don't remember it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one should boast. I mean, we're people of grace, and that's our favorite verse, right? Like, yeah, I'm all over that one. Totally good with that. And, and we should be. But this is where people get confused. If my salvation is completely by faith, then how do works play a role in it? Well, you need to continue with Ephesians 2. Don't just stop at 8 and 9. Go to verse 10. Look what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what, church? Good works, right? Yeah. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This helps us understand why Paul wrote what he did to the Philippian church when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That confuses a lot of people. Why would he say that I've got to work out something that's given to me by faith? Why did he write that? Well, put it together now. It makes sense. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both for what person? For purpose, to will and to work for his good pleasure. This makes, makes a whole lot more sense when we start talking about going to God for 90 days in prayer, saying, God, I want to know your will. I want to carry out your good pleasure. I want to be submitted to your purposes. See, the argument here is this, a life saved by faith is going to give evidence by doing God's work. 
So these outward works, these outward deeds are the evidence of who I am inside. So just to be clear, I don't want anybody leaving here saying Mark's all about works into heaven now. No, that's not what I'm saying. Salvation is not by works, but true salvation will produce works. So I'm just going to ask you to do a little measurement for yourself right now. You don't have to talk to the person next to you about this. You can just do it internally. Just mentally ask yourself this question. What am I doing right now in my life that's kingdom-oriented? What am I doing that's working towards advancing the kingdom? How am I carrying that out? Perhaps things that no one else knows about. Perhaps things that only God sees. Are there ways I'm actually serving? That I'm meeting needs? That I'm advancing the kingdom? That's just for you to gauge yourself on. No judgment. Just ask yourself that question. That's a a good self-evaluation. Lori and I were talking about this last night after the Saturday night service. Because there's danger when you're in full-time ministry. You you know, you're getting paid to do this kind of stuff. You, you, You find yourself saying, well, it's all kingdom work. Well, gauge yourself. How much of it is done just because I want to advance the kingdom? We need to ask ourselves that question. Romans is very, very clear. If a person is truly saved, there will be outward evidence. Now, let's just be really honest. Every single believer falls short of God's perfect standard, right? We do. We do it all the time. Sometimes we even find ourselves falling into disobedience, into sinful behavior. So we want to be very, very careful about how we understand this passage. Because what do you do with like the guy who's the, the thief on the cross, who's brand new into the kingdom, and he's on the cross nailed next to Jesus, and at the end of his life, he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus' immediate response to him is, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. I love that guy, right? Thief on the cross is great for all of us to remember. Even if you've committed everything wrong up to the end of your life, God's going to bring you into the kingdom if you surrender to Jesus. So what do we do in that sense where that guy doesn't have a record of good deeds? He's the thief on the cross after all, right? He's under capital punishment for Rome. God is a righteous judge, is he not, church? He's a righteous judge. He knows our hearts. We've got a guy who's a brand new believer on the cross about to die. He's not in danger of going to hell. He's going to heaven because of what Jesus said. You will be with me in paradise. So we want to be very, very careful about how we gauge this. God knows the hearts of every individual. So that's why we can say, Scripture backs this up, a life completely unfruitful can make no claim to being redeemed if they say they're redeemed, but there's no evidence that they're redeemed. There's nothing going on in their life. So Paul explains it a little further in verse 7. He says this in verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's their reward, right? They seek after glory, honor, and immortality. Eternal life is their reward. Now, I want to make sure you understand this. And ladies, forgive me when I use this description in perseverance because Paul's using a very masculine term here. It's very much a manly fortitude association when he uses this word perseverance. 
It was used of soldiers, exclusively soldiers and sometimes athletes, who were in the heat of competition or soldiers in the thick of battle. And in the fog of battle, many, many thoughts rush through the mind of a soldier's thinking process. But one thing they do know, their survival depends upon their perseverance. So this word perseverance that's used here is denoting someone who's got this manly fortitude and he gives out as many blows as he receives and keeps on fighting even to the end because he knows it's worth pursuing that goal. Well, Paul uses that word perseverance in association with glory and honor and immortality for this reason. He says, the highest good someone can pursue The highest objective of their life is to seek for glory and honor and immortality. And we would step back and say, that seems so self-serving. What is he talking about? Together, those three phrases describe an eternal focus, a heavenly focus. So let's go back to that simple gauge again. You just asked yourself, what am I doing to advance the kingdom? Here's a simple gauge. Is the trajectory of my life to advance the kingdom? Am I pursuing the kind of glory he's talking about? Am I pursuing this kind of honor? Am I pursuing God's kingdom to be advanced? Let's use glory as an example because I'm not going to go through all three of them, glory, honor, and immortality. So let's just bear down on glory for a moment. He uses that as a really good demonstration. This, this first gauge, the highest desire of a believer should be glory. Above all, God's glory. A person who doesn't desire to bring glory to God in any way is not functioning like a Christ follower. Well, let's go to Scripture to back that up. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Does that mean like when I play soccer? Yeah. Does that mean like when I go to work, when I go to the office? Yeah. Like even when I go to Qdoba and sit down and eat a taco? It's no accident that the writer inserted there this thought of whatever you do on a daily basis, whether you eat, drink, sleep, walk, talk, do all to the glory of God. So what does that look like to live for God's glory? I'm asking myself the same question you're asking. Is my life really a conduit for his purposes? Uh, Maybe you've been finding yourself this morning, just in this short time we've been together already, beating yourself up thinking, whoa, like, man, what a worm am I? I haven't been doing so good with this. Let's talk just about the nature and character of God for just a moment. God says his nature and character looks like this. I am merciful, I am patient, I am long-suffering, I am kind, I am generous. Let me ask you to gauge yourself internally right now. How you doing at wearing mercy? How you doing at being long-suffering? How are you doing at being patient with people? How is that self-control thing going for you? And probably right now, if you're a Bible person, you're thinking, man, Mark, that sounds like fruits of the Spirit. Yep, exactly. All right? See, if, if we're chasing after the things of God, we're beginning to model the character and the nature of God. It doesn't always have to be the person going down and serving food at the, at the rescue mission. Maybe if you're new to Christ, you're just finding yourself changing in your attitude. 
Maybe as a new believer, perhaps you're starting to look at life differently than what you used to. Hopefully, that's the case. So a believer is pursuing glory, not self-seeking glory, not this ego-driven glory. That's what screwed up Adam and Eve. That's what screwed up Lucifer. I will ascend above the God of the Most High. I will be as God. That's self-serving, ego-driven glory. That's not what we're talking about here. We're looking forward to God's glory. It's something that we pursue, sometimes simply by living out your Christian life, just by wearing the weight of that responsibility. If you're a Christ follower, walking into a hostile environment, maybe even among your own family members, that's a weight to wear, isn't it? Sometimes going into the office, into the workplace, There's a weight to wear. It's a weight of responsibility. You know what that weight is doing for you? It's producing, this should be an encouragement to you, it's producing a weight of glory. Look with me on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4.17, these momentary, Paul was talking about the hard tribulations he was going through, these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. So I'm just gonna bear down for another moment into this glory thing so we really get this down. I want you to see 17.22 from the book of John. John chapter chapter 17, verse 22. Here's what we understand. First of all, this is God's glory to begin with. Jesus said this, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. It's God's glory. He passes it on to us. Here's the second thing we understand. It's ours because of one thing, because we have been justified by Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen again. Romans 8.30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also what, church? Glorified. That's awesome. You get the glory of Jesus Christ put on you. I mean, is there a higher glory than that? I don't know of one. It's the very thing that Satan wanted. Couldn't have it. God says, I'm going to put my glory on you. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. I'm just going to back this up a little bit more. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When does this happen? Future. When the second coming occurs, when King Jesus is revealed. Look with me on the screen again. Colossians 3.4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. So catch this. It's not a glory that you and I achieve, right? It's not our own self-serving kind of glory. It's ours because of what Jesus has accomplished. And it's a glory that we'll understand much more fully in the future. So we live for it. We chase after God's glory, advancing his kingdom. And we chase after the honor, the honor that comes from what? From hearing him say this. Way to go, man. Get in here and enjoy the things that I built for you. Let me back that up from Scripture. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 25, 21. Jesus speaking. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's talking about heaven here. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You catch what Paul's doing here in Romans chapter 2? He's describing what the life of a believer looks like. These qualities that are culminating in the final glory of eternal life. And just to remind you, this eternal life that you were just singing about in that last song, it's not talking necessarily about quantity of life. But by its very definition, it's eternal, right? 
But it's eternal life, not eternal death. Eternal death is for those who are damned. We're talking about eternal life. First and foremost, it's the quality of life. So here's the point. A person who possesses the life of God within them is going to reflect the character of God. It's impossible for a person with eternal life waiting for them to fail to reflect something of God's character. So when we believe in Jesus, when we profess ourselves as a believer of Jesus Christ and submit to his lordship, we enter in from that point into a responsibility to live like Jesus. That may help you make sense of why James wrote what he did. He's half-brother of Jesus. James wrote what he did in James chapter 2. Look at me on the screen. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you did not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That, that's why James wrote that. Jesus said, there's, there, there's this, this list. Does your life match up to the list? Do, do you say things and do other things? Because I've got a record of these things. So with our eyes fixed on glory and honor and immortality, these qualities come from walking with God. And the resolve of somebody's life like that is always towards heavenly things. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in verses 8, 9, and 10, but just let me show you the contrast and why Paul brought these out. Verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's the result for them? Wrath and indignation. We said earlier, my actions. I used myself, personal pronoun, Mark Kring's personal actions. Let's just insert our, all of ourselves in there. My actions are flawless indicators of my character. They, they show who I am. Do, do you notice that Paul lists here in verse 8 the selfishly ambitious who do not obey the truth? He says their character is the complete reverse of those who are chasing after God. But this is really subtle. Notice this. He's not giving a list of vices of the things that we commonly think of of somebody being unrighteous. He's not listing drunken brawlers, cheaters, fighters, these individuals who take advantage of society. Not talking about liars here. He, he's establishing a different standard. He's talking about individuals who fail to obey the truth is identified as one of the two primary features of unrighteousness. Meaning, you can look really good on the outside. You can be an awesome, awesome parent. You may have a really great bank account. You may look phenomenal to society, but God knows what's going on inside. Is what's inside matching what's outside? Charles Simeon said it far better than I. Many of you know that I lean into him. I haven't used him for a while as a theologian, so let me show you a quote from him on the screen. This is back in 1822, so frame your thinking around that kind of writing. It is not necessary that a person should commit such crimes as are reprobated by the world around him. He may be blameless as to his external conduct in the sight of men, and yet be very ungodly in the sight of God. 
His aversion to the truth as it is in Jesus constitutes him a most flagrant sinner before God and subjects him to God's heaviest displeasure. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be looking up Charles Simeon in heaven one day. I've got to thank this guy for all these quotes he keeps giving me. Profound insights. He said it very, very well. You may look really great on the outside, but inside it might be a mess. So Paul says there's some characteristics of those who are the unredeemed, meaning that they just haven't been saved yet. doesn't mean they can't be. It just says they're unredeemed at this point. They're selfishly ambitious. Now, he uses a very unique term here. The idea is of a mercenary. The, the root word behind it is hireling, someone who's been hired to carry out a function, who does their work simply for money without any regard whatsoever to the issue. So everything that person does is simply for their own good. No place for God in their life. That's selfishly ambitious. And, and then he uses this other phrase, do not obey the truth in verse eight. That, that kind of disobedience to truth is synonymous with rebellion. That's why God in the scripture says a rebellious soul is actually called the enemy of God. So what have we been seeing here? In, in verse seven, we see the definition of somebody who's chasing after righteousness. Contrasted with somebody in verse eight who's self-seeking. Why the contrast, Paul? The contrast helps us understand God judging people on the basis of their personal actions. So the first group has got life in mind. They're chasing after that. The second group, totally pursuing what the world would say is successful selfishly ambitious, all about yourself, but their lives are controlled by it. What are the destinies of those two groups? That's what we want to understand because we're talking about judgment day. How do we understand this? Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now, we're almost done. Just stay with me on this. These last two words, I, I'm not even sure I put them in your notes. These two Greek words, they may, they may be in there. This word tribulation is this word thlipsis. And it, it comes from the grape industry. When grapes were crushed in the Middle East and made into wine or in Europe, this word thlipsis was used. An extreme exertion of external pressure, crushing something. So that's the word that's associated with tribulation. And it's used of anguish. And then he uses this next word, stenocria. It's this word, distress. Specifically, it was applied to a very narrow room, a place of confinement. And we can understand this one. This makes more sense in our modern world because when we have someone in our society who is aberrant in their behavior and egregious towards society, our best and only recourse is to lock them away in prison because they're such a threat to society. But what happens when that person goes into prison and that person is a threat to other prisoners? They're so aberrant in their behavior, the warden of the prison has no choice but to lock that person away in solitary confinement. That's exactly what Paul is picturing here. This narrow place of extreme confinement. So this is what I'm understanding about part of hell's torment is it's absolutely isolated, it's lonely, it's eternal confinement in a narrow space with no possible hope of any release. Paul says this is the destiny of those who reject what God is bringing them. And then he uses this powerful phrase to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. 
who did Jesus come to first, church? The Jews. First place has first responsibility. But then he uses that phrase again in verse 10 when he talks about happy things. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now let's just be really clear. Your destiny does not depend on whether you're Jew or Gentile, right? It's crystal clear at judgment day, God will open up the books and he will see, do my words match my works? Have I been a Christian by mouth only? Am I faking it? Am I, am I causing people to believe something that's not true of me? My actions determine my destiny. And he sums it up with verse 11. I'm not going there today. I'm just going to show it to you on the screen. This is where I want to launch from next week. He says there's no partiality with God, no, no favoritism. Here's how it's used. We have a hard time picturing this because we live in a democracy, but in a theocracy, there's only one person who rules, and it's a king, right? And if you wanted to come and see the king, you always had to come into the king's chamber and bow before the king with your head down to the ground. And perhaps the king might show you favor by grabbing you by the chin and lifting you up by the chin and allowing you to look eye to eye. That's the partiality that he's talking about. He's saying there's no partiality with God. He looks every person directly in the eye. He brings everybody into the courtroom and he tells them exactly what they need to hear about who they are. Now, right now, you might be thinking, how in the world does this all fit together with this 90-day challenge? Now, first of all, it doesn't have to. It's a privilege just to be able to pray and be part of what God's doing here at New Hope. Amen? I mean, just to see what God's doing. It doesn't have to, but I found faithfulness of God in the midst of this passage while I'm working through it. He showed me something that absolutely helped me understand this. The good deeds which God asks of us if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's asking that of you. Make no mistake. These good deeds which he asks of us, we would all agree on this. And I, I know you can agree with me. Just say amen if you do. It's impossible to do it in our own power. All right? Because, like, we're not necessarily merciful by nature, right? Or patient or long-suffering or kind or generous. So it requires the power of God working through me because on my own, I'm going to be incredibly weak at that. So just like salvation, good works are only possible through God. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, the only way to produce righteous deeds is to have the righteousness of who, church? Yeah. If you, if you don't have Jesus, you can't produce righteous deeds. Everything amounts to wood, hay, and stubble at that point. It's, it's worth nothing. So as a result of having Jesus in our life, that the Holy Spirit indwells us and he empowers those works. Let me sew this together for you. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. You'll see it on the screen. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we go to God at 9 o'clock tonight, if you're agreeing to do this, and maybe you do this over the next 90 days, I hope you do. When we do this, it is not just an action of asking the Father to show us, how should I give, God? How much should I give? Should, should I give? That is not the purpose behind this. The purpose behind 90 days of prayer is to understand His will. 
because we want his will accomplished in our life, right? And we've just told in Ephesians 2, he's already prepared good works for you to do. Supporting the church's construction project, it might be part of that. But we never want anyone to give to a project like this outside of the will of God. And no one wants to give under compulsion, right? Because God says he loves a cheerful giver. That means a happy giver. That's a laughter giver. You can give hilariously. You can give with laughter. When you give in God's will, that's a great way to approach it. So if we are asking him to accomplish his good works through us, good works that will advance his kingdom, good works that will demonstrate this eternal weight of glory in our life, then, church, we're in the right place. We're in the place where we're totally tracking with God. He wants us to produce good works. Our responsibility is to come before him and say, Father, how do you want me to respond to this situation? So, Romans 2, verses 6 through 10. I hope it spoke to you this morning. I'm going to pray that it did. Let's pray together. Lord God, you've given clarity, and perhaps there's even confusion here, and that's not a bad thing. I recognize that confusion causes us to ask questions so we understand things better, but I thank you for where you gave clarity. Father, I pray for this right now. There's, there's individuals in this room who've never even settled the issue of whether or not they're a Christ follower. And I pray that you would continue to work on their heart, that you would continue to prod and draw these individuals into relationship with you. But Father, for those of us who have declared Jesus as our Savior and recognize we have new life because of him, Father, I pray that you would help us to be bold about these actions as we continue to try and conform our life to your purposes and to your will, use us for that purpose. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week.